This is Inspiring Scientists with me, Dr. Kylie Matchett, the podcast where I talk to brilliant scientists about their careers. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Elaine Emerson from the University of Edinburgh about, among other things, moving country with her two cats to do a postdoc and changing fields in the process. Great. So thank you very much, Dr. Elaine Emerson, for coming to speak to us at Inspiring Scientists. And um, I wanted to, to speak to you about your journey through science, you know, what took you into science at school, um, your topics during your PhD and going on into a postdoc. And you've also gone from the UK to the US and then back again. And so you know, what, what took you over there? The labs that you chose and then why you decided to come back. Um, so just to start, would you like to introduce just the work that you're doing and the research that you're currently doing as a group leader at University of Edinburgh? Yeah, certainly. Um, so my name's Elaine Emerson. I'm a, a junior PI at the Centre for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I've been a PI for a little over four years um, and my group are researching um, ways to regenerate um, the salivary glands um, in people who've had radiotherapy for head and neck cancer. And the reason being that while the radiotherapy is quite efficient at targeting uh, the cancerous tumour, it also sometimes targets other tissues that are sort of in the, in the same sort of area. And one of those tissues or organs are the salivary glands. And so then patients come through their treatment and um, hopefully come out the other side cancer-free, but they're often left with these quite serious side effects um, of producing no saliva or very little saliva. And then this has a huge impact on their quality of life. So we're looking at uh, different ways to try and regenerate the salivary glands, either by transplanting cells like stem cells into the gland or to be able to change the sort of gland environment to allow it to regenerate internally. Oh great that's um, really exciting research and it's nice to see how it has quite immediate real-time benefits potentially too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and what took you into into that area of research? I was looking at your biography and I noticed during your PhD whilst it was still regeneration themed it was much more into the role of east receptor in wound healing so slightly different from from where you've come to now so what yeah. took you yeah so so like you say i i did my phd in in regenerative medicine but a different different angle and a different tissue type um and i then did a, a second postdoc where i was looking at skin and looking at wound healing after my phd and then um for my sorry, for my second postdoc, um, which was after that, that was the first postdoc, for, for my second postdoc, I then moved fields and started working in um, salivary gland development. And that's really where my kind of interest in salivary gland regeneration came from. Um, so I'd moved from a lab that was very skin-based to um, a lab that was then looking at a different epithelial organ um, and actually really looking at development um, as a a tool, I suppose, to try and understand how an organ's built in the first place. Um, and from that, I then became really interested in the idea of, could we use what we understood from what happens during development, how an organ builds itself in the first place during, um, during development, could we then extrapolate that to um, be applicable to regeneration? So how can we rebuild an organ after it's been injured or damaged? Um, and this is something that was actually really personally interesting to me as well, because um, 
just before I started my PhD, my father was diagnosed with head and neck cancer. And at the time I had no idea of the side effects of radiotherapy. And that wasn't something that I think we um, really even understood throughout his treatment. Um, and then, then it was only really when I started studying the gland um, and started looking at regeneration or lack thereof that I really understood what was going on during his treatment many, many years before I even started that postdoc. So it was quite sort of serendipitous as well. So I've always mm -hmm. had this kind of personal um, passion, I suppose, for, for being interested in what I'm interested in now. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that started during your PhD when it was much more related to skinned skin yes. wound healing exactly yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah so it's really nice and so when you were seeking out your second postdoc then is that what drove you to to do that topic and go to that lab that kind of personal history it was definitely one of the reasons um it was something that i think sort of um grew as i was as i was researching it and becoming more um more interested in in the sort of salivary gland biology and understanding more about it. I think it was something then that definitely the personal link um, really helped with the the kind of um, interest and enthusiasm that I that I found for that field. But also, I think it was just a really interesting topic. So when I read um, the job description, so it was actually a, a job that I saw. I was coming to the end of my first postdoc um, at the University of Manchester, which I did straight after my PhD. Um, and I, I was coming to the end of that and was already sort of thinking I'd like to move a little bit out of maybe the skin field or something a little further away from what I'd been doing during my PhD and my first postdoc. Um, but I didn't really know what, I didn't have kind of a, a set idea. Um, I certainly didn't expect to be moving to the States. That wasn't something that was necessarily on my radar. It wasn't that I had this passion to, to go and work in the US, which lots of people do. Um, but I was, I guess, quite settled in the UK. I'd bought a house, um, I had two cats. So it wasn't something that was on my radar at all to, to move abroad. But this job advertisement was circulated um, around the university in, in an email in the way that we quite often see, see things circulate these days as well. Um, and it just sounded like a really incredibly interesting project and something that I'd never really thought about and never thought about how you could apply the processes of development to then understand regeneration. And I thought that was a really cool um, kind of model and a really nice way of looking at something. And then I had a sort of informal chat with the, the PI and the project just sounded more and more exciting the more she sort of spoke about it and um, the more I delved into like what her lab worked on, what she'd previously worked on, what the department at, um, at the university worked on. Um, so then I had this, I guess, kind of difficult decision of, well, I'd never decided that I wanted to go and work, work abroad. It wasn't something that I'd really considered at all. And then I had to think, well, can I do this? Is this something that I could actually do to be able to, to follow the uh, dream of potentially taking up this position. Um, so I chatted to lots of people and said, you know, all, all of the sort of caveats that I thought were the, the blocks in my my path to, to actually move mm -hmm. things like owning a house and having pets. Um, and actually, 
it turned out that all the advice I got was actually really sensible. So everybody said, well, you know, if it's something that you really want to do, those are all things that can be overcome. So, you know, you can sell your house or you can rent it out, which is what I did in the end. Um, and people do take animals abroad these days. So I looked into the idea of uh, taking the, the cats with me, which again is what I did. Um, so they flew out to America with me and, and back. Um, and then just from there, it just, everything just fit into place. It just became this really exciting move um, and a really exciting um, uh, sort of option for me. Um, and then I was offered the job. Um, which was really nice um, and I have to say did, that it was the best best thing I ever did the best move I ever did mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool no it sounds like it all worked out really nicely which is great and for your because as you were saying you seem to research the role and the job quite thoroughly both the PI and and so it was quite a kind of um, strategic decision in some ways it wasn't just oh this sounds good let's give it a go it was quite well thought out by you and then clearly you know what you wanted to do and what your interests were um with yeah. the the interviews that you did for the role was it all online or did you go over and visit the lab so it was actually all online um which i guess in hindsight felt quite a risk to have basically accepted a job and to move um to the the far side of the the us to the west coast um when i'd never been there so i'd i have been to the States before um, and I have family that live on the East Coast but I'd never been to the West Coast I'd certainly never been to San Francisco um, so I guess yeah that was that was quite a big risk um, I guess the the reason why I sort of took that risk was that I had um, a couple of friends who I'd done my PhD with who had actually both already moved out to uh, San Francisco the year before um, and both were working at at UCSF at the same um, university um, and both of them loved it um, so I think I felt quite confident that um, they were happy and settled there um, it was a, a great place for them to live we had a lot of commonalities um, so the idea that they were happy and had gone and made a success of it gave me a lot more confidence than I think I would have had if I'd not known anybody who was there mm -hmm. Plus the fact mm -hmm. that I had two people that I knew already there made it yeah. hugely, hugely easier to just move and up. Yes. up and, you already up. had a kind of instant support group. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Nice. Yeah. yeah. No, that is really nice. And did you speak to other postdocs or PhD students in the lab as part of your research for the role and, and kind of researching the PI? So it was quite a new lab when I joined. Uh, so my former PI had only had her lab for about a year by the time I joined. Um, I spoke to her technician, um, again, over, over a video call. Um, and he made me feel like it was a good move um, and that it was a, albeit a, a sort of new and newly developing lab, that it was in a good, um department um a sort of well-established department um and the other groups that were within that department were much more established um and i could see that from both what he told me and what the pi told me and also just from kind of doing my own research of, of the department mm -hmm. online <clears throat> i think that made me feel confident that that it was um stable enough that um it would be a good move 
but also what really attracted me I think was the fact that that it was such a new lab um so that to me was quite exciting and it was something that I felt like I could um I guess be a part of so rather than necessarily just joining a, a sort of well-established quite big lab where I might be a, a kind of small cog um, I felt like this might be the opportunity where I would actually be quite a driving force in the lab um, mm. I'd be one of the sort mm. of senior people and I've mm. always thought that in the back of my mind that that might give me some opportunities that that maybe one wouldn't get from a sort of larger more well-established lab um, and actually I have to say I think mm. I still personally think that that was absolutely the case so my um, former PI, like I say, had only just started her lab. So it was really important for her that she had um, a successfully running lab. So I think she put an awful lot of effort into me and into my career development and into mm. um, the lab running smoothly, not only for her, but for, for the people that were joining her lab. And I think, well, I hope that that, that, that is shown by the path that I've then taken since I left her mm -hmm. lab. And you're saying that she already had a technician well established in her lab, which must have been a great support yes. to you. So it's not like a lot of the the sort of day to day running of the lab didn't fall you as as the neuro person in there, Absolutely. which is which yeah. is nice. So you and can he, concentrate on, as you're saying, driving the research. And, exactly. And, yeah. And the really nice thing was that even though he'd only been in her lab for a year or or so, maybe even less, he'd worked at the university in a different lab beforehand. So he knew the, the workings of the university and how sort mm -hmm. of processes worked, who to go and ask for help and advice. So he was actually much more experienced even than just being in her lab for that year before I arrived. Mm -hmm. And so in your first postdoc, which was in the same group as your PhD or same center? Yes, um, so it was a sort of offshoot group, <laughs> one might say. Yeah. Um, so my, I did my PhD um, and then I then did a, a first postdoc um, in the same department, as you say, um, actually slightly moving groups. So I moved to the newly formed group of um, a former postdoc from my PhD group. So he'd started his own group um, and it was yeah. sort of a kind of an offshoot, I suppose. So. That was nice because it was it was in the same department. It was comfortable in the sense of knowing people, knowing processes, uh, knowing the field quite well. Um, so I was able to sort of start, you know, kind of hit the ground running, I guess. Um, but it was a different project and it was a slightly different, um, I guess, kind of tangent in terms of the research. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I've always thought of it as kind of a strategic move because <laughs> it was a, a kind of an, uh, an easier start i suppose to starting a complete fresh project a complete fresh university but still moving mm. to a different area and learning new skills so yeah, yeah. and then also still you know because going straight out of a phd to then also potentially have gone straight into your second postdoc role essentially would have been quite a big leap but at least yeah. your first postdoc as you said you had the kind of um the basic underpinnings of of all of your work there you didn't have to worry too much about settling into a new group or a new area and that let you develop and hone your research skills and your postdoc leadership skills mm -hmm. there because i guess Absolutely. you would have been interacting with phd students and new people in the lab and but it sounds like it was quite a, a new similar to your second postdoc where it was a new small nascent lab yes. but just within a center that you already knew quite well Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I had lots of the benefits of 
yeah, having a sort of fairly junior, new, enthusiastic PI um, and mm -hmm. kind of new funding streams, um, exciting directions for projects, but also in a well-established environment and a familiar environment mm -hmm. as well, which I think actually is really important. Um, and I still think mm -hmm. to this day that that was the, the right way around for me, certainly, because I think, like you say, if I'd jumped straight into maybe moving abroad and going to do a postdoc um, in another country in a completely different field, I'm not sure that I would have um, sort of succeeded in quite the same way, I think. I think I would have um, maybe taken longer to, to find my feet. Um, I guess just that little extra level of maturity as well, I think always helped. So mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I still mm -hmm. think that was the right option, certainly for me. Because mm -hmm. you'd gone from high school straight into your PhD, straight into your postdoc, so you hadn't sort of taken a year out or anything like that, which which a lot of people don't take your year out and time out between studies and things. Yeah, um, yeah. And with this, yeah, sorry, with, with this jump that you did from your skin wound healing into um, regeneration of the salivary gland. Mm -hmm. How did you manage learning or going into this new area, this new field, um, increasing your learning? I know, I guess it's all about reading and talking with people, but how did you find that just maintaining your confidence as a scientist being in such a new field and speaking out at perhaps seminars and asking questions? So, um, yeah, basically, I think one, starts to feel like they know their field when when you're kind of finishing your PhD, you feel like you know the field quite well, you know the literature quite well. So for me, um, I felt like I, I understood a new wound healing and skin quite well by the end of my PhD. Um, and then again, throughout that first postdoc. So then going into a into a second postdoc that, that was a different, um, a different tissue, um, and also a different I guess sort of life stage as well because we were very much looking at development which is something that I'd not studied at all um, except for you know little bits at, at university in my undergrad so I did feel quite um, I guess naive um, at first and, and did have to do lots of um, reading and really sort of teaching myself um, the kind of basics of, of development and morphogenesis for example and um, familiarizing myself with different organs that are maybe better studied than salivary gland um, so things like lung um, but I think for me the the biggest um, kind of positive of all of that was um, that the that my former PI was very active in the lab so she like I say was a, a new PI and she was just setting up her lab so she was in the lab an awful lot and she was the one that taught me lots of the techniques. Um, she was, you know, very hands-on. Um, certainly, in the first couple of years were of my of my second postdoc. So I think that was really helpful because she knew everything in and out. Um, and I guess, you know, even when we weren't formally discussing um, either the science or, or uh, projects, experiments, etc. For example, if we were sitting side by side while we were dissecting, um, then we'd typically be kind of chatting about things, talking things through. So I think that sort of even um, unofficial kind of uh, mentoring and discussion was really helpful. But it did take a few years for me to feel like I was confident in presenting my results and confident that my kind of conclusions were 
were correct and were the right interpretation of the results. Um, and I guess even now that's that's still the case. So we're doing, for example, quite a lot of work now where we're collaborating with um, a group of immunologists and that's not my expertise at all, my area of expertise at all. And yeah, it's a really exciting area. Um, but again, I'm having to kind of relearn things that maybe I haven't studied for, for many years um, and certainly wasn't an expert in. So having that confidence to be, um, to well, to be confident in your interpretation of your results, I think that will probably always be there in any any new field that we move into. And I guess the part part of science is trying to understand all aspects, and and it might be a bit like you're saying, immunology and development have come along at different times, and so you've then had to delve further into those areas than you would have ever touched on during your undergraduate mm -hmm. degree, learning about biology and anatomy. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's just keeping yourself open to accepting that you're not going to know everything and you can't know everything. And this is why you bring in ex experts in different other fields to help teach you and, and help you learn about it Absolutely. all. And accepting that you can, it's okay to ask naive questions because yeah. as well, your naive question could stimulate a kind of different aspect about their research that they've maybe not thought of either. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's the, the really wonderful thing about science and research. Um, I think more so the, the, the more we go into the future, because I think that there are so many different areas and so many new techniques that I don't think any one person can ever be an expert in, in everything. That's just not possible. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that the, the beauty of having collaboration and utilizing the experience or, or the expertise of somebody else um, who does know what they're talking about is such a powerful tool. And I think we should all be, um, well, really using that. And, and mm -hmm. especially in, you know, great big universities where you've got lots of kind of cross-discipline um, and different centers, I think, use that expertise when it's there. Mm -hmm. And dealing with so many individuals in different areas from certainly the work that I do, it's I'm much more a wet lab biologist and I'm having to interact with a lot of bioinformaticians and computational scientists. That's yeah. not my field whatsoever. Um, and when you're, say, speaking with immunologists, which from my experience, there's, there's an awful lot to immunology, so many different markers and cell types and different cell stages that have different markers um there's there's an awful an awful lot to learn and how 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 do you go about um or what what's your approach or how do you go about having discussions with them about i mean I, i'm guessing you're using it to try and understand the immune cell populations within the niches of your salivary glands yeah and absolutely they'll obviously have they'll enrich your understanding of that so how how are you uh, interacting with them and trying to, to understand that, but also because like they might come at it from their approach of it being quite complex, but you mm. have to try and get them to distill it down into a more simple, digestible fashion for yourself. Or... Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that, um, so I've actually, I guess, worked alongside immunologists throughout um, all of my sort of academic career because the department that I was in when I was doing my PhD, we were actually in an immunology department then, um, even though the, the research that we didn't do was, the, sorry, the research we did do was a bit away from immunology, but it was sort of tangential and we used a lot of the same techniques, hence us being in that department. Um, so I've, I've been sort of exposed to, I guess, the language and um, 
the techniques, especially for years. And it's taken quite a while for me to sometimes realize just that terminology um, is not something that necessarily we in, in my field would use. So, so one really good example is the fact that I think I would consider a sort of normal, um, maybe steady state organ as um, being in homeostasis, whereas an immunologist quite often re refers to that as being naive. Um, and that took me a really long time to, to discern the fact that that was the same thing. Um, so I think it's a lot of it is to do with language and to do with um, appreciating who your audience is and who you're talking to about um, what language to use and just how to describe something. And that goes both ways, so that, that works for us talking to immunologists as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what's been really nice um, with this project and, and as we're moving forward with it is the fact that there's just very little known in in our tissue in the salivary gland so it's been a kind of really blank canvas which is incredible because it means that we can really investigate everything uh, or anything and everything um mm -hmm. and it's not already been done it's all of it's novel which is quite exciting but that we can also utilize what people have done in other better studied organs. So, for example, people know much more about obviously the immunology of the gut, um, but also of different organs, different epithelial organs like the lung, for example. Mm -hmm. So we can learn a lot of what's going on in our tissue by just looking at what people have done in those other tissues. Um, mm -hmm. And I think then kind of extrapolating our, our findings. Um, and that's also, a real benefit of working with with other people and with people with expertise in something else is the the models that they use so you know quite often we can sort of piggyback on the back of other people's experiments because they may be taking all sorts of other tissues from say a mouse model um but very mm -hmm. rarely is anybody taking salivary glands um so that mm -hmm. means that we can kind of piggyback onto that experiment and take a look at what's going mm -hmm. on um and that's mm -hmm. obviously a great resource for us um it makes sort of the experiments kind of go further. Um, and then that's obviously mm -hmm. from a from a sort of animal use point of view, a really good thing <clears> as well. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. That's really exciting. And I just say it's so exciting to be in a field which is quite rare and in, in some senses these days that is pretty much untouched. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've, I think I've always enjoyed that. That's another reason why I think my move from, from skin um, into salivary gland um, why I've never sort of gone back, I suppose, is that I think um, salivary gland is a very understudied organ, um, whereas mm -hmm. there's an awful lot of research into skin and wound healing, and there has been for many years. So mm -hmm. it's quite exciting working in something where I think you've got maybe more avenues to pursue um, and more things perhaps to find, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. And you're saying it's, it's clearly relevant in the case of pathology and disease and uh, recovery post-cancer. Is there also an element of um, it, the, the pathology of the salivary gland occurring just naturally during aging mm. too? So is there a relevance to geriatric research? Yeah, so we, we think so. Um, it's something that's mm. quite difficult to study just because age in itself has so many I guess kind of confounding mm -hmm. and yeah exactly mm -hmm. um so especially in human research that's very difficult to study because you've always got to take into account all the other um, pathologies somebody may have 
any medication they're on, um, various different things. Mm -hmm. So it is quite a difficult area to study. Um, but from what we've seen, we think that there is just a gradual decline of tissue function with age, um, like there is in many other organs. So I think that a lot of what we're looking at now will be likely applicable to, to other areas. Um, and that said, there's also a, um, an autoimmune disease called Sjogren syndrome, which again, kind of preferentially attacks glandular tissues for, for some reason. Um, so patients that suffer from Sjogren syndrome of, also often suffer from salivary gland dysfunction. So again, it's another area that our research could be applicable to. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. And thinking about this last year, so your work with immunologists, has that just developed over, did that start pre-pandemic and then you've had to try and keep driving that throughout or yeah. was it fairly well established before the lockdown? Um, so we'd started before the lockdown, but I certainly wouldn't necessarily call it established. <laughs> um, but we've actually managed, uh, so one of my PhD students has managed to do an awful lot even in the in the sort of time that we've had since we kind of reopened um, last July um, and even with the the kind of restrictions and um, uh, sort of uh, smaller working groups um, and and smaller building occupancy etc etc that he's actually done an awful lot over the last year I suppose um, and really built upon this project um, and I think that then again comes down to the fact that we've been collaborating with people so I don't think he would have been able to do nearly as much kind of on his own so he's been mm -hmm. again sort of piggybacking on other people other people's experiments um gaining expertise from them um and I think that's really why he's managed to be so successful throughout um but yeah it's, mm -hmm. it was really something that was very sort of a fledgling um project before lockdown and it's kind of blossomed since then and it's still I'd still really say it's in its infancy and there's a lot we don't know but but we're mm -hmm. kind of moving forward at quite a nice pace now which is great mm. and how have you man how have you managed to keep uh, your impetus going during lockdown when as you say you know for, certainly for the first three or four months or maybe it was four or five we weren't able to go into the labs at all were you having weekly lab meetings or did you have to furlough anyone during that time or did you manage to keep things going yeah so we um i didn't furlough anybody um we continued having um our regular lab meetings so so group meetings all together just switched to kind of an online format um i also continued with one-to-one -one meetings with each of my team um again in an online format so mm. that way at least i could kind of see how they were getting on um, and and suggest ways forward um, and I have to say that that across the team they all experienced it really differently so some of them really struggled and really found that being out of the lab um, was incredibly difficult and they they couldn't focus on trying to switch to do something else um, while there was kind of lab work waiting to be done um, whereas others of them actually were incredibly good at kind of switching and then were able to be really productive. So, um, for example, one of my PhD students wrote a whole review during lockdown and had that published. So mm -hmm. I think everybody approaches things differently. Um, 
and I think it's it all comes down to to personality and to the way you work and whether you're able to be the kind of person that can sort of motivate themselves to do something um even if it's not even if there's no urgency there perhaps um mm -hmm. which is the kind of person that I am so I I don't do very well under pressure but I can make myself sit down and work on something even if it's not due for for months whereas I know mm -hmm. there are certain people whose sort of personality means that they need that pressure and they need that sort of impending deadline to be able to get something done so I think that was a real difficulty because if you don't have that and if you just have this sort of unknown amount of time that we're out of the lab and going to be at home um I think that's actually quite a challenge to then work against and to push against um when you've mm -hmm. got such an unknown ahead of you mm -hmm. no definitely and then for you as a, a leader a group leader within that situation did you find it a quite a steep learning curve um during that time to, to try and you learn about these different personalities and and how to motivate them differently and and yeah. maintain their motivation differently as well you had to really kind of think about that i guess absolutely yeah so um i think i think i was always aware that there were different personalities in the group um but i think the lockdown really brought that out um so like you say i had to kind of think of ways in which um, each person could work and whether that was setting sort of week to week goals um, that we would then discuss um, or whether it was to set, you know, just send somebody off to go and do something and they could go off and just do it and then report back when they were finished. So it was very person to person specific. Um, but I think knowing personalities and getting to know people really well, I think was was pivotal in that. There was no way I could have done that without um, having those, I guess, quite frank discussions. And luckily, I think all of my group feel and felt comfortable enough to tell me um, how they were doing, like how they were really doing. So not kind of sugarcoating mm -hmm. things and not glossing over and saying, oh, yes, I'm fine. Um, but actually saying mm -hmm. I'm really struggling. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what how to move forward and and if i can't do anything this week i feel like a failure so i think recognizing that mm. was was a really important part of um, managing during that really difficult yeah. time yeah and a compliment to you as a, a leader that they felt that they could approach you in such a frank way and have those discussions because i'd yeah. imagine it wouldn't be the same for across the board for many pis and in the context of your postdocs that you did and and now for you as a group leader what do you, th what during your postdoc prepared you to be this group leader and, and sort of manager of people that you now have to be? Yeah. Um, do you think really it's just question. a bit an innate thing? It's, was it something that you actively learned from your previous PI or do you think you've just kind of fallen into it? Have you done any leadership courses? I think there are some of those that are sometimes available. Yeah, there are. Um, so I think some of it, I think you just, I guess, kind of, um, I suppose, always know how you would like, like what sort of PI you would like to be. And I think a lot of that comes from previous experience. And that could be either that you really want to kind of recapitulate a, a PI that you admired, or it can be simply that you don't want to do the same as somebody else so you might feel that mm. 
you've had a, a previous PI or a previous boss or line manager or something where they have a, a, a tactic or an approach that you don't like and that you know I for example I didn't think was the best way to deal with things so I think actually you can you can learn things both ways so I think the positives um, you can definitely go down the, the route of oh I'd really like to be like this person in this um, respect but I think you can also shape yourself based on I really don't want to be like this person in this respect um, so I think that's partly the way I've kind of approached it um, I also have been on a leadership course, um, which was hugely helpful, actually. There was um, lots of kind of discussion about, again, about different personalities and about how to sort of manage that and deal with that, how to have conversations, um, especially how to have difficult conversations, because I think, again, that's something that you don't innately know how to do. Um, and everybody is different. Every PI is different and every member of a team is different. And I think having that understanding of how to have conversations with different people, um, I think is a really important part to have that trust and um, sort of mutual respect for each other that you need to have um, to have any kind of good working relationship. And whether that's in a hierarchy or whether that's just within a group, um, I think you always need to, to need to know that. So that. Um, course was actually incredibly helpful um, and then I guess there's there's just a huge amount of things that I wasn't prepared for so I would always consider myself to be a scientist and so I think in terms of science I'm quite good um, in terms of the sort of um, sort of team management um, supervision side it's something I've learned as I've gone kind of through my academic career, just through supervising more junior members of the lab, supervising students, etc. Um, but then there's lots of things that you just don't get taught, like finances. So we have mm -hmm. to be in charge of our own budgets. And that's not something that obviously a normal bench scientist is, is good at. You're not good at balancing money and keeping an eye mm -hmm. on things like that. Um, Luckily, I think I not am quite good with money, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, not everybody is. Yeah. So, <laughs> no. um, and I think too, it's not not necessarily something that is that bench scientists are normally exposed to necessarily. It's, exactly, it's something that we don't often need to consider. Ah, exactly. Yeah, and then there's a, a, a huge element of things like um, sort of pastoral care as well, and um, mm -hmm. kind of maintaining an understanding of other people's mental health, which again is something that we're not necessarily taught it's not something that you um go into this position expecting to be a, a big part of your kind of day-to-day -day life but actually i think it is i think that i have a duty of care to everybody in my team and that comes down to not only their science and getting them through a phd or a postdoc and and progressing with their career but also making sure that they're okay um and this mm -hmm. has been a really difficult year for that because obviously most people have gone through a period of not being okay, um, myself included, during this year because just because of all the pressure that's been on us and um, mm. being away from family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So mm. I think um, that's a, another big part that is now being recognised as being something that's really important. But mm. I think still, it's not necessarily something that we're prepared for or that can really even be taught. Um, I think again, maybe it just comes down to experience and understanding personality and even just 
being able to listen, I think, um, and just having mm -hmm. that space to be able to listen to people um, and understand them a bit better. And some, some people have that innately as you seem to do and others, they, they don't and they're maybe not even aware that they don't have that or that they're required to have it. And in, in a slightly different track um, with roles of PIs, obviously a lot of writing grants, organising papers, um, when you're writing things like grants um, or working with your um, students to write the papers, what type of environment or do you like to set yourself up in? Are you pretty flexible? You can work from office or home. Um, I remember reading about an author who likes to listen to thrash metal when she's writing her <laughs> novels, um, which is maybe a little bit extreme. I don't know if I could concentrate so much then, but you know, what, what do you like to do? Um, I don't think I'm too particular on where I am necessarily. Um, I, I think if I'm in the right zone, I can work either in my office um, or certainly in normal times in my office. Mm -hmm. um, I can also work quite well at home. Um, if Again, if I'm in the right, right frame of my, mind. Um, I've often worked in the library, for example, just because it's giving me that sort of space and I've gone there for a particular reason. Um, so myself mm -hmm. and a, another colleague, we quite often go and have a day in the library and we'll go and sit and write and then we'll have lunch together and then we'll go back and write. Um, and that's actually quite good mm -hmm. um, for sort of uh, the enthusiasm for doing it, I suppose, and, and kind of both mm -hmm. pushing each other to, to do mm -hmm. um, a little bit more. Um, I do tend to listen to the radio usually if I'm if I'm writing so I can't really concentrate in silence um, and I think I've always mm -hmm. been like that so I've always been somebody that needs some music on when revising and and don't really mm -hmm. like kind of total silence um, but if there's too much kind of chit chat talking <laughs> then that tends to put me off because I'll start listening to the talk rather than focusing on yes. what I'm writing yeah. so it has to be a good balance <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but, I, but actually recently I think one of the the things that I found actually has been hugely helpful for me is that as part of the the kind of lockdown um routines um I when I was working at home or when I was solely working at home at the beginning I found that I um, needed that sort of routine as if I was going to work. So I would still get up at the same time. Um, I would you know, get dressed, have breakfast. And the thing that I was missing was the commute to work, which I think quite often is the space that I sometimes think about things um, and mull over what I'm doing that day, think about what I need to do. And obviously I was missing that because I was working from home. So I started going for a walk um, every morning before sitting down and starting work um, and at the same time I would listen to a podcast um, so something like for example The Life Scientific I've actually found that mm -hmm. um, listening to other scientists experience I think somehow gives me inspiration toward what I'm doing so listening to somebody else's path then coming home and thinking mm -hmm. right I'm in the right frame of mind to sit down and put this down on paper and to write my ideas or to write my paper um, so actually, yeah. I found that really a really useful kind of tool, I think, um, and especially during lockdown, yeah. that's been really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just when we've not been able to talk to other scientists and go to conferences or attend so many seminars, it's definitely been nice to have 
a different way of, of being able to keep up with science and mm-hmm. and interact with different scientists and especially with life scientific there's so many different fields that yes. he speaks to scientists from so absolutely no, that's yeah. great oh well thank you very much elena Rison, for your time uh, and being on inspiring scientists and um good luck with with hopefully coming out of lockdown and getting more into the immunology side of the salivary glands in your research thank you very much and thank you very much for speaking to me today I've just finished speaking with Elaine and I loved hearing about how she found her way into salivary gland development and regeneration research and also found it very moving the personal relevance of her work. She gave fantastic insights into moving country and changing fields and the hidden roles of being a group leader. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do leave a review on your podcast platform or if there is an inspiring scientist you'd like to hear from, get in touch with me on Twitter at Dr. Kylie Matchett. Join me next time on Inspiring Scientists when I speak with Dr. Lara Campana about not only taking the leap into industry, but being one of the founders of a spin-out company. Music for this podcast was provided by the podcasthost.com and Alatu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com forward slash free music. <laughs>